So welcome everybody this morning to the seminar. My name is Claire Baker. I'm convener of the Economy and Fair Work Committee and this is a Futures Forum and Spice seminar on the wellbeing economy. Um, so the Futures Forum is the Scottish Parliament's think tank. It exists to look at the big trends and issues shaping our lives and our future and to help the Parliament explore what they mean for our work. And Many of us are familiar with SPICE, who are our research and information service, um, and we all know that they provide us with accurate and reliable information that helps MSPs to work effectively. So today's um, seminar is a collaboration between the two, and it is a first in the series looking at economic transformation in Scotland. So the subject for today's discussion is the idea of Scotland as a wellbeing economy. Um, you know, some of the challenges we are facing do at times feel overwhelming. Um, the climate and ecological emergency, inequality in an ageing population, um, and in this context, new ideas of how our economy works and should work are beginning to take hold. Uh, so this seminar with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance will look at the idea of a wellbeing economy. The Scottish Government's 10-year economic strategy has the overriding vision to deliver a wellbeing economy for Scotland. Um, but this morning gives us a chance to really consider what does that mean, what would it look like and what difference would it make. So to discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted to welcome Dr Lucas uh, Bunsaf and who's joined with Francis Rayner from the Wellbeing Economic Alliance. And we're also joined by political economists Miriam Brett and Simon Farrell, who is a former co-owner and managing director of one of the UK's most successful brand agencies. So that's everybody introduced. Um, Lucas and Francis will start us off this morning with an introduction to the wellbeing economy. So I'll hand over to you both. Thanks, Claire. Um, thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. The mic isn't actually connected to the speakers. It's just for a recording. So if anyone struggles to hear us at any point, just wave and we'll try and project more. Um, so as Claire said, we're from the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, Lucas and I. Um, so We All Scotland is one of um, a growing network of hubs around the world that make up the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. So the movement was really brought together because there were lots of different uh, think tanks, organisations, academics and economists economists um, kind of testing different ways of um, looking at the economy to really respect planetary boundaries and deliver for humanity. Um, and we wanted to kind of bring that together so we can learn from each other and really um, work together as a movement. Um, so just we're really just getting started in Scotland in the last 18 months. We've uh, had our kind of first staff team, but this is just a snapshot of the kind of organisations that are part of um, We All Scotland. So um, think tanks, social enterprises, environmental NGOs, children's charities and that kind of thing. Um, so why do we need a well-being economy? You'll all be really aware of the challenges we face. So I'll try not to labour the points too much, but this is where it all comes from. Um, so as you well know, as you will well know, um, you know the IPCC recently warned that we have a rapidly closing window to secure a livable planet, and obviously the effects of climate change are really starting to be felt um, close to home. So it's um, increasingly top of people's priorities, even though many of you will be working on these issues for a long time. Um, and at the same time, this is just one of the environmental challenges we face. Uh, we're already crossing. Um, roughly five of the planetary thresholds um, that scientists believe um, are points at which we trigger um, irreversible changes to our environment. And at the same time, even before the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, one in four children in Scotland was growing up in poverty. And we know that 
this isn't a problem of there not being enough wealth to go round. So um, the 20 richest families in Scotland own as much wealth as 1.6 million people. So to put that into context, that's uh, equivalent to the size of Glasgow, Edinburgh and the Highlands and Islands. Um, that number of people earning as much as, as, as 20 people. Um, so so how did we get here? <laughs> um we believe that um, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, that a big part of the problem is the economy we've inherited and the, the model we've all been using for a very long time is um, hasn't really been updated. So um, at, at its heart, it has the goal of growing GDP. So a lot of our economic decisions are really focused around this um, um, impossible, you know, um, everything has to be about growing GDP. But the problem with GDP is it just measures the exchange of goods and services and doesn't really distinguish between the things that we need and the things we value um, and the things that actually cause harm. So natural disasters, oil spills and things that we would say are bad for humanity can end up being positively recorded in GDP because it creates construction and um, new jobs. You have to build new homes, whereas things like child care and things that we all um, rely on to function as a society and for our economy to function and to make life meaningful aren't captured in GDP. We also know as well that once you get to a certain level of GDP growth, there's not much evidence to suggest that continuing to grow GDP um, leads to better outcomes for, for people. And it's really the continual um, pursuit of GDP is really causing environmental um, damage and is a big factor in climate change. Um, and um, we've got a report if you want more details on this, but I think um, the way we think about how the economy works at the moment is we do really care about these things that GDP doesn't value. So obviously we, we put a lot of uh, policy resource into fixing these problems. Um, but in, in practice, this, this is failure demand. It means we're just kind of paying to fix the problems that we've created through the design of the economy or through not intentionally redesigning the economy. So for example, you know, we, have, we um, rightly spend money to home people who are living without homes or we ask teachers to try to um, close the poverty-related attainment gap rather than saying, okay, well, what kind of businesses could we incentivize? What would our tax system be like if we decided that poverty, any level of poverty wasn't acceptable? Um, so wellbeing economy attempts to address this simply by putting very different goals at the heart of economic decision making. Um, so the goal of good lives on a healthy planet, very hard to disagree with. But in practice, the way we um, think about our economies is, is, is often not like that. Um, so we have as a kind of a, a couple of principles for starting off thinking about how you would do this in practice. And we've collated these five well-being needs, which are kind of repeatedly found in kind of surveys from around the world as things that people need to um, live good lives. And we kind of co-created them with our global movement. So it's made up of hundreds of organizations that came to this, but they're very simple um, ideas. So everybody needs dignity. So enough to... Um, to, to have their needs met um, participation so the chance to participate in the decisions that affect their lives um, purpose so institutions that uh, serve the common good um, a restored and safe natural world and a sense of fairness so income and wealth being um, more fairly distributed um, so I'm going to hand over to my colleague Lucas who's going to talk about uh, how we start to get there um, the shifts we need in policy and practice yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, a very good morning, 
um, from me as well. And as Francis has outlined kind of the vision of what, what that kind of well-being economy could look like, the big question is then how do we actually get there? What do we have to do to make this happen? And um, that requires quite a lot of shifts across all sectors, across all actors, um, which is more than I can cover in the next five minutes. But really the point where we how we start thinking about it is these four kind of design principles, um, purpose, prevention, pre-distribution, and people power, which all start with a P, which makes them easier to remember. Um, and you can think about them as basically like the corners of the jigsaw puzzle that we're trying to put together, like the places where we start. And so the first one of these is purpose, which is very much about, as Francis has said, embedding that purpose of, of serving the needs of a collective well-being for people and planet at the heart of decision making on, on in terms of um, both economic policy, wider public policy, but also at the heart of businesses and, and other organizations. And then the second one is about prevention, which is about tackling the root causes of problems. Um, as Francis has already outlined, we had um, we are at the moment causing a lot of harm. Our economy causes a lot of harm, which we are then kind of patching up, um, which is very important work. But it would be even better if we could design it in the first place, so it wouldn't create these things in terms of um, mitigating climate change and and investing in preventative measures. And then the third one is pre-distribution, and that is really looking at that issue around the massive inequalities that our economy generates. So at the moment, it does that. Um, and then we redistribute some of that with the tax system, which is very important again, but it would again be even better if we could design it so it wouldn't generate that inequality in the first place. And that very much means looking at questions around ownership of, of businesses, of land, of other assets, how to democratize that um, and, and things like uh, and, and other things like universal basic services and, and, and ways to set, design our economy differently. And then the last one is people-powered, which is very much, um, I think, the most important one is and that is the idea that a well-being economy cannot really be designed from the top down, but needs to be built with a very meaningful and, and wide engagement of the people who the economy is actually meant to serve. And that is because otherwise we're going to get it wrong. Firstly, but also because a lot of the question around the well-being economy are very political. It's about what are the needs that everybody should have a right to have, what are the kind of things you should be allowed to make a profit with and what's not. And that's things that is very much a political decision that have to be made with democratic processes and cannot really be decided by economists like me. So that's kind of an, a very much a whistle-stop tour of the, the way we, we think about the well-being economy. So we can start looking at what kind of progress Scotland has made so far. As we said, we had um, a commitment to a well-being economy from the Scottish government for a while. Um, and looking first at that, really the idea of embedding that purpose or a different kind of purpose at our economy, if there's a start there. It's like we've got the national performance framework. Um, we've also more recently got a well-being economy monitor. Um, and that is kind of a, a good starting point, but we also know that that's not actually used as much as it could be in terms of actually influencing decision making. Um, and it's also not been developed in as participatory a way, I think, as it could have been. Um, and so the question is then, how do we really take that forward? And there are a lot of other countries who have started to be a bit more serious about this. So, for example, well, New Zealand has started building its budget around well-being priorities. We've got the Future Generations Commissioner in Wales, who provides them the scrutiny and, and advice and support around this agenda. And then the, on the right is um, a kind of Citizens Council in, in East Belgium, 
which basically started implementing a con basically a kind of um, permanent citizens council of randomly selected citizens who facilitate citizens assemblies but also scrutinize the work of the parliament so really building that participation element right in but that's very much the kind of um, and in, in Scotland here now we have plans coming up for well-being and sustainable development which is very much trying to start, take some of these ideas forward so there will be opportunities coming up to actually try and start putting some of these these things into practice but that's really around the kind of foundation in terms of the public institutions how we make decisions and how we can make different decisions around our economy but we can also start looking about the economic policies and redesign of the economy at the same time and again there is a lot of interesting first steps happening in Scotland. The Business Purpose Commission reported um, recently with um, very interesting work going on around community wealth building in North Asia and a few other places. Um, there's the, uh, just a lot of thinking and work happening around just transition, for example. Um, and these are all kind of interesting starting points, but I think, um, but they don't add up yet to that kind of systemic change that we're looking for for a well-being economy and we need to be a lot bolder and go a lot further in that and again even within the devolved powers that we have i think there's a lot more that could be done in scotland um, and the ideas for that are very much there and these are all things that um, do not come from us but have been proposed by, by various people whether that is things like you know, minimum income guarantees and universal basic services you can use local tax powers the land reform is coming up i think there's a bit in the pipeline for that as well we could do a lot more to support um, cooperative social enterprises um, could think about public ownership and in, in where that makes sense in different sectors and so that's really kind of so the ideas are there. There's a lot of demand for that. Like last um, last year, we published or wrote a statement together with all our members and our allies about setting out some of the building blocks and key principles of a well-being economy. And we got absolutely inundated with support, like much more than we expected from, you know, environmental groups, poverty organisations, but also public health, academics, unions, businesses. So there's a lot of kind of um, a lot of demand for these ideas there, and we really need to start doing them now. I think. So that's, I will leave it there and hand over to, to Miriam and Simon. And thank you. Thanks very much, um, Lucas and Frances. Um, so we're now going to hear from uh, Miriam and Simon. I'm going to ask Miriam to provide some reflections first. Miriam, as you may know, is a political economist and trustee of the campaign group, the Green New Deal Rising. And Miriam, you've also helped North Ayrshire on their community wealth building yes. uh, strategy. So I'll hand over for Miriam to some reflections. Thank you. Hello, um, it's really lovely to be here today. So thanks so much for inviting me to, to everyone that's organised it. Um, I've been tasked with outlining some of the priorities for a wellbeing economy in five minutes. So challenge accepted. Um, so firstly, perhaps stating the obvious here, but intrinsically linked to inequality, the causes and distributional consequences of climate and environmental collapse um, are unevenly felt. That's both within and between global global. Um, regions and, and countries. The top 10% um, of the, the richest globally consume 48% um, of global CO2 emissions. Um, and we see this reflected at a UK level as well. The richest 1% produce 11 times the um, emissions of the poorest 50%. So there's vast inequalities in um, carbon emissions and consumption. And what we see repeatedly is that structurally oppressed groups um, are often least likely to cause 
um, climate and environmental breakdown are often at the front line of it. They're facing the consequences um, of this disproportionately as well. And what's increasingly clear is that marginal changes to an economy that is driving intertwined crises, that is driving collapse, just simply won't suffice. And the time for timid, timid changes to that economy um, is long gone um, because uh, we have a very limited time left to turn the ship around. Um, now, I've got a few minutes to talk through some key priority areas, so I'm going to talk through three of them. Um, the first of that is, is land. Um, land reform is undoubtedly one of the greatest achievements of the Scottish Parliament, um, and I'm pleased to see another land reform bill coming down the line. Um, from you know nature restoration to rural housing justice to biodiversity protection, land is absolutely um, integral to securing a well-being economy. Um, but there's recent changes in Scotland's rural land market that's placing upward pressure on land prices um, and potentially having pretty devastating impacts. And Scotland's fairly unique um, in, in a sense. It has a large rural land mass. It has still, despite changes in progress, very concentrated ownership of land, has very favourable subsidies and tax regimes to um, many landowners um, and ha still, still remains a, a lightly regulated land market. And that's made it highly um, attractive to investors seeking to purchase rural land um, for carbon offsetting purposes. Um, and there's a danger here that the benefits of so-called natural capital could flow to a small handful of private landowners, and that can trigger wider implications for rural communities from you know, pushing up rent prices um, to, to being unable to, se to secure their economic potential. Um, and there's a wider question here as well as to kind of, are we enabling through our land market, are we enabling, you know, major polluters um, uh, to effectively offset their emissions or kind of delay or detract from progress um, rather than actually doing the hard graft, which is reducing the direct emissions to begin with. Um, Nonetheless, we've got a land reform bill coming up, and I think there's a few key action points that we can and should see within that. The first of that is strengthening community right to buy. Um, it was a huge area of progress, um, and there's more that can be done to build on that. Um, second, to introduce a new statutory power to apply a public interest test to large land holdings. Um, third, the creation of a mandatory system of um, certification for carbon credits um, to provide more scrutiny for buyers and sellers. Um, and last, but by no means least, the, to secure the longer term ambition of um, creating and um, introducing a land value tax. The second area I'd like to touch upon today is that of energy systems and how it can be intertwined with community wealth building. Um, community wealth building's um, been um, mentioned already today, and rightly so. We've got you know, the world's first community wealth minister. We've got the world's first community wealth building act. And um, as Claire mentioned, I've been lucky enough to sit on North Ayrshire's community wealth building expert panel over the past few years. And what community wealth building can and should do is local economic systems change. It's the transfer of physical and financial assets in the hands of local communities and economies. Um, and it's rooted in five key pillars. It's about plural ownership of the economy. It's about making financial power work for local places. It's about fair employment and just labour markets. It's about progressive procurement of goods and services um, and the social production of uh, social use of um, uh, land and property. 
And it's particularly important in the context of the current energy crisis because what that's done is shone a spotlight on long-standing failures and fault lines within a privatised, deregulated um, energy system. And we're seeing that very clearly just now. Um, the rates of fuel poverty are absolutely catastrophic, um, particularly if we look to um, the, the north of Scotland. Um, and fuel poverty as well, important to state here, it's it's homelessness, it's debt, it's bailiffs coming into your home, it's your energy supply being cut off at its source. It is genuinely devastating and has, has no place in today's society. It shouldn't have any place in today's society. And one of the things that we can start to tackle, um, one of the thing, areas that we can begin to tackle here is um, energy systems ownership. Now, there, there's obviously a huge amount of overlap here with what's um, devolved, what falls within the Westminster powers and, and uh, that of Holyrood and indeed local government. Um, so I think we can look to create and establish uh, municipal energy companies that can develop, own and deliver um, low carbon heat, like district heating, for example, um, and energy efficient infrastructure. Um, and North Ayrshire, I mentioned North Ayrshire earlier, and one of the projects that they've worked on screams kind of common sense approach to me, which is um, uh, North Ayrshire um, Council have purchased uh, solar and wind farm and they're looking to, looking to build them. Um, so that's publicly owned energy. Um, and if that's successful, when created, that could generate 277% of North Ayrshire's energy needs. And that excess energy can be then be sold back to local public anchor institutions. Now, that to me is a common sense approach that runs in direct contradiction to the shoring up of our energy, which we all need to survive, into the pockets of, and line in the pockets of shareholders. Um, and last, but by no means least, um, the a net zero industrial strategy was spoken about and referenced in the um, in the NSET in the National Strategy for Economic Transformation. Um, and I want to speak about that just um, as as a as a concluding point. Scotland's economy today is still heavily reliant on fossil fuels, both in terms of our key jobs and our key sectors, um, and. What we need to see is a restructuring of Scotland's um, industrial base and labour market um, to initiate good green unionised jobs as part of a green industrial strategy. That, again, is um, uh, an area that will, you know, that necessitates action at Westminster, that necessitates action at Holyrood and at a local level as well. Um, what is integral here? I mean, I think as, as I see it, we are at a crossroads and we can either wait until it's too late and see waves of deindustrialization, which, you know, the last round of deindustrialization, there's still scars in communities today from that. That's still, that's still evident in child poverty rates and hunger and homelessness rates um, in, in industri former industrialized communities. And that is not an option here. So what we need is rapid action um, to initiate a, a green industrial strategy um, and ensure, ensure that we make the right choice at those crossroads. Uh, and what that needs to necessitate is a, a different role played by the state. It's not one where we step in in cases of market failure, um, but instead one where the, the state is actively engaged in stewarding a green industrial strategy that you know, accelerates decarbonisation and democratisation of our economy, that protects the livelihoods of fossil fuel workers and communities, that builds um, on the fair work agenda, strengthening it, um, and, and that enhances our green in, in, uh, um, green um, domestic manufacturing base as well. 
There's also an opportunity within the, the, the green industrial strategy to expand what we might think as traditional green work. Um, yes, of course, manufacturing, export-led industries are integral, um, but areas of the economy like care work are low carbon by nature. They are green work. Um, so a better understanding, I think, here of what green work is um, and can be. Um, so I'm going to finish up there. Um, but yeah, many thanks. I think there's just, just lastly to say that, you know, it's, it feels like a really daunting task ahead, and it is a daunting task ahead to to um, rewire the economy to make it sustainable, to make it democratic, um, and to make it um, fairer. Um, but we've got a very limited time left to do this, so I think it's time to get creative and bold. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Miriam. Um, I'm now going to invite Simon Farrell to make some comments. Um, Simon is an award-winning brand strategist who has more than 30 years' experience of supporting businesses throughout the UK. Uh, we had the Business in Parliament event last week. Um, I chaired a session on business uh, purpose, so it was an area that was there was quite a lot of discussion around, uh, so it was good to have businesses in. And we're going to hear from Simon about his thoughts on that area. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, so I was uh, asked to come along today just to uh, to give some reflections from a, a business perspective. So I thought I'd uh, start by giving you my credentials from that point of view. So I studied economics at school. I studied business studies at university, and I, I got an MBA uh, from Warwick Business School, and um, and went straight into to working as a as a graduate, working for multinational businesses. Uh, I've worked for large. Uh, independently owned businesses. I've worked for smaller SMEs uh, and I, I ran and owned my own business here in, in Edinburgh. So for 12 years, I was running a, a brand and marketing business very successfully uh, and uh, employed 55 people and, and everything, I guess, was looking pretty rosy. Um, in 2017, actually it was 2016, I had a bit of a, an epiphany. I've got four children and uh, and I realized that the, 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 the businesses that I was working for, my clients, these big multinational businesses, were actually, I was helping them make more and more money. And in doing so, they were having a negative impact on the, on the environment. They weren't really caring about the impact they're having on the environment, on the future, the future world that my, my kids were inheriting. And, and I thought, there's, there's something not sitting quite right for me here. Is, uh, you know, I've spent 25 years helping uh, other businesses make money, and I know how to make money, but actually in doing so, I'm creating a world which my kids are going to inherit, which isn't going to be uh, very, very good. But what do I do about that? You know, I, I only know how to make money by the way that I've been taught through all these years and what my, my managers told me, my directors told me, what my shareholders were telling me to do. So, and, and, and actually, from a personal point of view, my only measure of success was how much money I made. You know, what was my percentage profit? What was my, G, uh, my, my, my net profit ratios, etc.? Um, and it wasn't until 2016 that I, I, I came across the, the B Corporation. So this was quite new news to me. And if, uh, I haven't got time to go into what B Corporations are, but it's a different type of business with a different type of mindset, which is basically saying, actually, what we're all about, we're a business, we're a limited businesses or we're a cooperative, or what have you. We're a business. We're not a charity. We're not a social enterprise. We're here to make money. But our mindset is we make money and we make a difference. We're, we have a purpose in life. Our purpose is to do something that actually is of good to society and the planet and to people. And it's not just about how much money we make. And I thought, that's, that's it. 
you know, as a business person, I, you know, I, I want to make money, I want to make a living, I want to employ people, but I want to make an impact at the same time. So I was really taken with this idea of B Corporation. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do is take my brand and marketing skills, uh, I sold my business uh, to my partners, and I'm going to try and uh, concentrate on helping those sorts of businesses so I can promote the, you know, doing good in the world. And, uh, and so that's what I started doing. And, I, and uh, it was 2018, I was doing it on my own. Like any new enterprise, it has its ups and downs, but, you know, but I was enjoying it. I was making less money, but I was feeling more fulfilled. And then in 2020, I, I came across this idea of the, the well-being economy. And I was really taken with that. So, you know, B, B Corps are all about sort of instigating change and having a different mindset to, to making money uh, at a business level. Then the well-being economy was doing it at a sort of a, like a, a, you know, a, nation, a nationwide level, a macro level. And that really excited me. And when I heard that Scotland was just one of like six nations were taking this quite seriously, I thought I am in the right place. I am in the right country to be looking at helping businesses think differently about how they think about business and the skill set that I have. Um, I want to do more of this. So I signed up as a, as a member for We All and, and tried to get as, as involved as I can or could and embarked on a, on a journey of, of, of trying to help businesses not just sell themselves better in terms of promoting a, a more uh, sort of purpose-led way, but actually helping them and at, a, at a, you know, a city level as well, which you'll talk about in a minute, to make a difference as well as making money. So that's what I did since 2020. Obviously, we had the pandemic. It's been quite challenging. But what I've seen throughout that time is not only businesses going I've never seen a business manager or a guy, a business owner say, making money and making a difference, that's a bad idea. Everybody thinks it's a great idea. Why wouldn't you? You know, it, it's not all, business people don't go, I'm only in it for the money. They do want to make a positive impact. They just don't know how. And also, we don't encourage them by saying success looks like this. We say success looks like more money higher profit ratios, you know, you read the back page of the business pages, that's what success looks like, more money. And so I think by trying to help business leaders, business owners, have a different mindset and give them the tools to, to move their business in a different direction, we can have a real, a real impact. And Miriam just talked about, you know, rewiring the economy is a different, you know, it's a difficult task. Rewiring a business is a much easier task. It's still difficult, but it's much easier. And I think there's a real opportunity to do that. Um, you know, uh, Gen Z, the younger people coming through, sort of 15 to 20 year olds, they're coming through, they're much more aligned to buying more sustainable products, helping businesses align their products and, and, the, and the way they sell them to those sort of audiences is a way that they can move their businesses to be, you know, uh, growing a demand which, that's there for the future. But it does need support and it does need, it does need encouragement because we've got years and years of a mindset shift. We've been teaching people through you know, schools and universities and business schools, this is what success looks like, this is how you make money. That all needs to change and, and that needs encouragement and direction. Last year, I was part of a team in Edinburgh uh, that set up uh, the Business for Good program. It's from a charity called Everyone's Edinburgh. And we tried to create a program to help, help businesses on that shift. Now, obviously, 
you know, the things, the challenges that business owners face with uh, cost of living and energy prices, it is, it is a challenge. But I think there's a real genuine desire there to, 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 to make that shift. And it was really encouraging to see the Business Purpose Commission come out last year as well, saying, actually, you know, this is the, what Scotland could look like. You know, we are in a, as, a, as an English person <laughs> living in Scotland, it's a brilliant place to be for businesses who want to make a difference and be more purpose-led. But we do need that encouragement we need to be able to support them, whether it's through, um, well, culturally, it's more as cultural, but, you know, tax regimes, things like that. So the government's response to the Business Purpose Commission is, is really important to help people like me help business owners move in that direction. Because I think it's such an exciting, uh, you know, opportunity. It's not... It's not a it's not a problem that needs to be solved so, so much. It's about it's an opportunity that there's to be taken. So opening people's eyes to say this is the future that you could run. This is the sort of business you could run, and this is how you could do it. That's, for me, is really exciting. And so uh, you know that's why I'm I'm really really excited about the prospect of living and working in a well-being economy and the difference that you know as a business person we could make and uh, to Scotland as a whole. So. I think that's my five minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, as I said, this is the first in a series of seminars on economic transformation. I think it's brought up lots of issues that people would like to continue having conversations on. So there are future events and they'll be um, emailed around soon and hope to see you at future events. So I'll close this morning's seminar. Thank you for coming along. Thank you.